This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I just had a great time for the past hour talking with Alan Christie about a book that he recently published, which is a translation of Amino Yoshihiko's Rethinking Japanese History that came out just in 2012 with the Center for Japanese Studies at the University of Michigan. Now, this is a book that was particularly exciting to read. It's a book, or is a translation of a book that was written for lay readers in Japanese, but it deals with concepts that are fundamental to anyone um, working in the historian's craft, anybody who is trying to tell a story about the past, and it does so in a very sophisticated way. So we talked over the course of the hour about the author um, of this text and his role in the context of Japanese historiography. We talked about the practice of translation. We talked about the importance of translation in the context of East Asian studies more generally. Um, And there are lots of fascinating stories about um, not just the creation of this text, but about the contents of the text as well um, that I hope you will enjoy. So here we go. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Carla. We're here today with Alan Christie to talk about a book that he recently translated, Amino Yoshihiko's Rethinking Japanese History. Now, this is a book that I'm very excited to talk about because it's full of insights, not just about Japan and Japanese history and Japanese historiography, which certainly it does, but also about fundamental aspects of the craft and the practice of the historian that I think transcend um, just the case of Japan. Um, and it's, it's really, um, it's an, it was an exciting book to read and I'm very much looking forward to talking about it. So thank you, Alan, so much for making the time today. Not at all. It's my pleasure. And thank you for the opportunity to talk about the book. Of course. So, Alan, could you start us off a little bit for listeners who may not be familiar with or as um, sort of deeply steeped in the field of Japanese historiography by saying a little bit about yourself and your own uh, research interests and how you came to work in this field and on the particular set of problems that you do? Sure. Uh, I am, I'm betraying a uh, historian of modern Japan. Um, I went to the University of Chicago for my graduate education starting in 1986, working with Harry Haratunian and Tetsuo Najita. Uh, and I went to graduate school um, with, as, as many first-year graduate students will have, a sort of uh, ill-formed uh, idea of what I wanted to do, but essentially, um, I, I think I told them in my application that I wanted to do intellectual history of people who didn't write books. <laughs> uh, you know, people who didn't leave traces uh, through with uh, obvious traces, textual traces through which you could uh, uncover their uh, their worldviews. Um, and uh, you know, obviously, once I arrived there, I realized how incredibly difficult that was. But that that sort of uh, 
predilection uh, led me uh, eventually to be looking at uh, the field of Minzokugaku, um, as exemplified by uh, folks like Yanagira Kunio or Orikuchi Shinobu or uh, Shibasawa Keizo. So this is a field that uh, is sometimes translated as folklore studies in Japan. It's, uh, uh, sometimes it's uh, translated as um, nativism. Um, I translated it as native ethnology for reasons that we could get into it at some other point in time. Uh, but uh, these are essentially uh, people who developed a field from the in the early part of the 20th century. Um, I have a book that just came out uh, on, that is my study of this field, the, the formation of the field, and basically look at the years 1910 and 1945. Um, and, and what they're trying to do is, there, is precisely what I want to do. They're trying to uncover... Um, uh, the the sources and the modes of production of Japanese culture, which they uh, described as culture that did not rely on writing or mojini yoranai munka. Uh, and I realized uh, early on in graduate school that if I wanted to do this particular study, I was going to event necessarily and inevitably be working through the field of minsokugaku. Uh, and so I decided that the, the prerequisite to doing what I thought I eventually wanted to do was to first make sure I understood what this filter would be. And so I, I, uh, I did a study. My, my dissertation was on the formation of the field of, of means of Gugaku. Um, a lot of stuff has been written on Yanagira Kunio, who's usually uh, uh, presented as a, a Freud-like founding figure, founding father of the field. Um, and... Uh, and and I don't really dispute his his central importance, um, but uh, Tetsuo Najita had had uh, turned me to uh, look at Shibasawa Keizo as another one of these interesting figures in the formative process of the field, um, as somebody who would be well worth looking at. Um, Shibasawa Keizo was the grandson of Shibasawa Eiichi, who is sometimes called the father of modern Japanese capitalism, all this patriarchy here. Mm -hmm. uh, but in any case, um, Shibasawa was, uh, was a few years uh, younger than Yanagira Kunio. Um, and while he worked in banking all his life, uh, as a sideline, he was deeply interested and invested in the development of, of ethnography in Japan, and particularly in the realm of material, material culture. Um, and so it was really, uh, Shibasawa's work was a really interesting counterpoint to the kinds of work that uh, Yanagita Kunio was doing. And looking at Shibasawa and Orikuchi uh, and Yanagita allowed me to present a more uh, plurivocal um, uh, image of the uh, development of the field rather than just focusing on Yanagita Kunio himself. All of that is to say that it was actually through my interest in Shibasawa Keizo that I came to um, know Amino Sensei. Um, while I was a graduate student at Chicago, uh, Najita and Harutunian invited um, uh, Amino to come to Chicago to give a month of lectures. Um, and in, uh, as he was coming, Najita took me aside and he said, you know, uh, Amino's first job out of college was at a research center that had been founded by Shibasawa Keizo. Mm -hmm. And so Amino uh, might be a good contact for you if you want to be um, studying Shibasawa. Um, so Amino uh, worked at the time uh, at a place that is known as the Nihon Jomin Bunka Kenkyujo, or they call it the uh, Institute for the Study of Japanese Folk Culture. 
Um, and that's the, the present day, uh, incarnation of the uh, research organization that Shibasawa Keizo formed in the early 1930s called the Attic Museum. Uh, it had actually, uh, shut down in the, um, early 1950s when Amino was fresh out of college. He'd worked there for a couple of years and then the, the center ran out of money and, and he was sent out into the world to teach high school and then eventually to go on to Nagoya University and whatnot. But they reformed the center in 1987 and they asked Amino to be the director of the place when they reformed it in 1987. That's, that's how he, uh, he uh, left his uh, position at Nagoya University, which is one of the national universities' prestigious job, and took a, a job as a uh, professor at a two-year women, two women's college in Kanagawa so that he could run that, that uh, Jomin. So I went to uh, Japan to do my dissertation work, uh, work uh, uh, research on a Japan Foundation fellowship uh, to, to the Jomin to work with Professor Amino. Uh, although, since Amino is a, a scholar of medieval Japan and I am, was training to be a scholar of modern Japan, I wasn't really going to study what he studied. I was going to look at how the center that he ran operated and, and uh, see what kinds of records they had of, of uh, their formative years. Um, at the time, Professor Amino was uh, deeply engaged in a study of a... Uh, set of documents from the early modern period uh, up in the Noto Peninsula that, that he writes about several times in the book that I translated uh, from a family called the Tokikuni family. And um, this is a, a study that had actually been started by uh, Shibasawa Keizo in the early 1950s. Um, and so I asked if I could join him on that. Uh, and uh, he, with incredible generosity, uh, covered all my expenses uh, for three years of joining them on these trips up to the Noto Peninsula to do the research up there. So that was the nature of the relationship. I was I was with him at uh, Kanagawa Daigaku for um, Kanagawa University. I'm sorry for for four years uh, from 1991 to 1995. Um, and uh, while I was doing my dissertation research, I was getting to sit in on a seminar on early modern Japanese history and, and the, uh, the, the, uh, documents in the Machino river Valley up in the Noto Peninsula. Uh, and so that's how I came to know Professor Amino. That's great. Thank you so much. So you, I was going to ask you what brought you to, <laughs> to his work, but you've, I think you've explained that really, really nicely in the aspects of your own interests in ethnography and material culture um, and sort of cultures that don't rely on writing or it's sort of we might consider that as a kind of uh, perceived marginality, right? I mean, that, that kind of bringing into the story the, that which we perceive as marginal, all of these things we'll, we'll get to talk about in the course of the discussion, and these are all aspects that are that seem really important to the kind of work that Amino is doing in the book. So, can you talk a little bit about the genesis of this project in particular, and how you got involved in translating it? And just um, for listeners, this work um, this this is an English translation of a work that was, um, and please correct me if I'm wrong, originally a two volume Japanese language text that was published for lay readers in the mid '90s, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right. Okay. So, can you say a little bit about this project? Sure. Uh, it's rel- pretty simple. Um, I showed up to uh, the uh, research center one day, and Professor Amino was sitting there with a, uh, a gentleman who was an acquisitions editor for Oxford University Press. 
and uh, Amino called me over and he said, uh, they're talking to me about uh, perhaps doing a translation of one of my works into English. Uh, would you do it, Alan Kuhn? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I said, uh, sure, uh, why not? And uh, then he said, how about doing this, uh, this book, Nihon no Rekshio Yominaos, which would translate literally in, into English as um, rereading Japanese history. And I said, uh, sure, that's no problem. I'd be happy to do that. So um, that was the, the genesis. We did this uh, originally in a, out of this with the Oxford University Press. Um, and at the time, this uh, there was only one of these two volumes out. Um, and so I started translating that. Uh, and in the middle of translating the first volume, uh, a second volume came out. He hadn't warned me that a second volume might be coming out. <laughs> and the second volume came out and he said, how'd you like to do this one too? And I said, sure. <laughs> So that's how it became uh, – that's how we did the two volumes together. Um, and the, the two volumes, uh, as they came out in English, uh, you, you can see the essential shapes of the original volumes by uh, looking at book one and book two. But we, I, we switched the order. So the book that came out second became book one in the uh, translation. And the book that came out first that I was starting on first uh, became book two. And it, it's partly because I felt that things were going on in the second volume to be released, um, gave a lay readership outside of Japan a little bit more uh, ground to stand on before they went into the more thematic chapters of the very first of the very first book. Um, and we can get into that a little bit more in a minute. But um, in the end, what happened was uh, in 19... I, I got a job at University of California, Santa Cruz in 95, and so I left Japan and came here. And continued to work on the translation as I got here. Uh, and then Professor Amino came uh, to give a series of lectures at Berkeley and Michigan and uh, I think it was Yale uh, in 96 in the fall. Um, and I joined, I, I actually joined him in Michigan and did the, um, uh, the interpretation, you know, I, I loosely interpreted for him in his, in his lectures at Michigan. And, uh, while we were there, we, we wound up in discussions with, uh, Hitomi Tonomura and, uh, Bruce Willoughby at university, uh, the center for Japanese studies at, uh, university of Michigan. Uh, and in the end we opted to, uh, Oxford, uh, their interests had moved on. And so we decided to, to put this out with, uh, with Michigan, with the center for Japanese studies. Mm -hmm. So, Oh, go ahead. I, I was actually just going to ask along those lines. Um, this did come out with the Center for Japanese Studies at the University of Michigan. Is this part of um, a, a larger project, or do you think this will be part of a larger project to translate important works in Japanese historiography into English, or is this, um, or, or is this just part of its own thing? As far as I know, it's part of its own thing, but I do think that uh, the the task of translating. Uh, the work of our colleagues in in Japanese is a really important one for us. Uh, when I when I talk to my graduate students here, I, I talk about the the necessity of of looking at the ways that the Anglophone historiography of Japan um, is in conversation with the with the Japanese language historiography of Japan, and that while one does work in Japanese historiography in English with, with a different expectation of audience and of, of uh, pre-existing knowledge of that audience and, and uh, different kinds of imperatives for how one is making cases so that one can't really, you know, uh, 
devolve into endless uh, minute debates about detail. Um, it's really important to recognize uh, the, the the work that our colleagues in Japan are doing, and certainly uh, feed off of that for our own uh, generation of our of our um, problematics and whatnot. Uh, and certainly, I've had the opportunity to work with lots of Japanese historians in Japan who who have felt that uh, what is going on in other languages and you know, let's face it, the Anglophone uh, historiography of Japan is, is dominant outside of Japanese language uh, has been a, an important feed for them as well. So I, I do think that the, uh, the my ideal career would be one in which I would alternate between uh, works of my own research and translations of, of works uh, done by Japanese historians uh, that I, I think should be read by everyone. So um, I, I'm now at work on my second book, and when that's done, I you know I'm going to turn to I hope I will turn to another um, translation, but that's again something for another point in time. Uh, but to answer your question briefly, I don't, I, I don't I'm not uh, aware of a project to do uh, more systematic translation. Mm-hmm. I think that it's such important work, though, and this is, um, just as an aside, this is something we often talk about um, at UBC, University of British Columbia, where I teach. We have a very large <laughs> Chinese studies community there, but uh, often, you know, it's really, um, people don't have a sense, and, and, and I mean, people, I, I think that a lot of the field, it's so hard to get a sense of um, not just what's being published in Chinese historiography, but what's, you know, who are the movers and shakers? What's the work? coming out that's really making a splash and how do we get to a wider audience and I think this kind of work is so important this kind of translation work but it's so hard often to find a way to get it out there right to find a publishing home for it and to find a way to support the kind of time and energy that goes into this kind of work so I hope this is the first of many translations we'll see from you yeah well and certainly uh, you know the Center for Japanese Studies at, at Michigan really is the kind of place that is supportive of this kind of work um, but this was uh, I mean this ended up being a labor of love I, you know I, uh, Amino Sensei was the most generous man to me for those four years I, I owe him uh, just a tremendous debt generous both in terms of, of um help with uh with my career generous with his with his uh, time and, and thought but also um uh just a a wonderful mentor uh and, but you know there was uh we couldn't get any money for supporting it anywhere mm-hmm. <laughs> so this was done uh pro bono as the lawyers say um and it was done while i was uh, finishing my dissertation and starting my first job and so the process of doing this was uh, ended up being very slow and and, and uh, time consuming um and i had to rely on the, on the uh, center for japanese studies really to to pull through on some of the more difficult tasks in the end um to to make this thing happen and i was very grateful to them for that well, let's let's actually get get into the. Um, what I wanted to ask you just a couple of questions or a few questions about the process of translation itself um, as it pertained to this particular project, and then we can get into some of the major ideas in Amino's work um, that come out of this translation that I think are, are really helpful and important to think with. So. One of the things that's really noticeable for a reader, especially a reader coming into this without um, expertise at all in Japanese history, is, is how clear and accessible the English is. It's so easy to read. It's really, really, it doesn't read as a kind of stilted academic prose kind of a book. And, and I know um, this was originally written for a wider readership in Japanese. So how when you were sitting down and um, for the many years that this took uh, working on this 
translation. How much did the fact that, that the original work was for a lay audience shape the kinds of decisions you made in producing the English version? And what audience were you shooting for also? So those are two kind of related questions. Right, right. No, it, it, was, a huge, it was a huge factor in decisions that I made along the way in the translation. Um, on the one hand, you know, I was hoping for uh, a readership of college students who might be taking a Japanese history class for the first time or an Asian history class for the first time. Um, I, I was hoping for a non-Asian historian readership as well, um, or even anthropological, because I think uh, one of the things that is consistent in Professor Amino's methodology is his his em- employment of of anthropological and ethnological um, uh, methods and insights. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, those kinds of audiences uh, would be great. You know, for, for a pure lay audience, my mom's a good test case. <laughs> um, it's the kind of thing that she can read through, but it's it, it's a bit hard for her in terms of some of the, not just the the concepts, but you know the thing. The the thing that is really indicative about this as a book written for a lay Japanese audience, in many ways, it's actually a series of lectures uh, that were then transcribed and edited in, to be, uh, um, you know, more smoothly um, written. Um, is that the style of argumentation is not what you would normally expect from an academic? Uh, Book and, and certainly, I think that in general, Japanese language uh, historiography will uh, employ a different re- rhetorical style, a different uh, form of argumentation in which uh, the relationship between the larger points, for example, and the, um, uh, the, the you know the foundational points and the evidence uh, that they're going to deploy along the way can be a little bit more associative mm-hmm. uh, than, say, structural. Uh, Arguments can um, move in a kind of repetition or a circularity um, that is sometimes pretty unacceptable in English. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but I wanted to to maintain some of that because I, I do think that it's really important to understand uh, that uh, these kinds of arguments can be made in different ways. So um, that we don't we don't need to have uh, necessarily the same kind of uh, of formulas that we employ when we're doing our historiography in English. Um, even though when I do my own work, I I use those those styles. But but to try um, to take seriously the mode of argumentation um, that might rely fairly heavily on anecdotes or or switches to anecdotes in places where you might not normally expect them or. Uh, arguments uh, that that build through a kind of repetition. Those were the things that I, I felt I had to keep in. And that there were times when I was I was doing this, in which I would come to a sentence and I would say to myself, "Good Lord, I've just translated that six times already <laughs> in this in this chapter." And I think I think the reader might toss the book across the room if they have to read that sentence one more time. And you know, in those cases, when when possible, I I would cut them out. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, nonetheless, I tried to keep that. Now, another way that the lay audience uh, question was was important was that, um, and he and I discussed this. Uh, I felt that you know there, there's a, a form of of writing about Japanese uh, history and culture in which we use uh, the Japanese words in the midst of English sentences, 
Um, if you've ever taken a martial arts class or you've ever seen martial arts being done in uh, North America, you'll see how often uh, people who don't speak any word of, anything of Japanese are being told to use Japanese words in the midst of martial arts, for example, something that's always puzzled me. Um, but certainly I think that when a student is given a text that has lots of, of Japanese words left in the text, it can be very alienating. Um, and so he and I wanted very much to translate as many words as possible, not leave words in, uh, in Japanese. Um, so instead of uh, leaving kegare, uh, which means pollution uh, in Japanese, um, if we had used kegare, perhaps the reader would have gotten used to kegare along the way. Um, and certainly they would have understood that kegare is uh, a term that would not match perfectly with pollution. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, thinking about a lay audience, I wanted the lay audience to not be feeling like they were having to juggle a lot of unfamiliar terms. Mm-hmm. So uh, we made the decision to translate those things as often as possible, even if it meant losing some of the specificity of that term as it might be in Japanese. Mm-hmm. There was one, uh, the, uh, the, the chapter that was probably the most difficult for that was a, was a chapter called Fear and Loathing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which which uh, I was really delighted that the chapter uh, was uh, so perfectly translatable to Hunter S. Thompson kind of title because <laughs> that's what it was in Japanese. But in that, cha- in that chapter, he mentions he's got endless names of different kinds of non-humans in the ancient past. Mm-hmm. And I'd have to come up with translations for these things uh, as much as possible. Uh, and in, in many cases, that's, that's the chapter where you, you see me failing in that effort uh, the most. But there was, one, there was one place there where there was this kind of person called a Miyagomori. And I get to this Miyagomori, and I'm thinking to myself, what the heck is a Miyagomori? So I, I think, I look around, I'm researching, I'm not finding much, I'm thinking through the, about the context in which he's talking about it. And I come up with this notion of a Miyagomori as a kind of a purification ritual specialist, uh, somebody that you can hire to close himself or herself into a space and perform a kind of, you know, isolation ritual for purification. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I, I don't remember what word I came up for that. And I tried, then I tried it out on professor. I mean, I said, so what's this Miyagomori thing? I think it might be this kind of thing. And he's smiling at me as I'm saying this. And he says, we actually have no idea what the Miyagomori is. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he says, just keep it as Miyagomori. <laughs> so I come up with this elaborate translation. God knows if I was right. You know, I was way off probably, but, uh, <laughs> It was pretty indicative of what those kinds of moments were like in translating the book. Um, but that was – there were other cases, for example. I mean, the, 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 this is, again, the, the subject that we can return to in, in more direct detail. The question of whether – it comes off really weird in English. The question of whether Hyakusho were farmers. Right. Right. And this was this was really important to him. And he, he gave me very clear directions on this. He said, you will not translate Hyakusho as peasant. You cannot use the word peasant to translate these guys. Uh, even though that's, you know, like you go to the Cambridge histories of Japan and you look up their glossaries in the back, you see Hyakusho and it says peasant. Right? So I can't use peasant. So, so what do I use? What word do I use to for that? And he also said, you can't leave it in Japanese. We have to come up with a word for this one. Um, so, uh, you know, I, we tried out several things. I, you know, I tried out commoner and, and whatnot. We, we, in the end, came down to villager. Right. Um, right. And um, I, I can talk more about that 
in a minute. But I, I, there were lots of places in the book where, where we had uh, we had an injunction. I had an injunction to to make sure that I came up with a word uh, that kept it in English, and and hopefully that's why the book reads uh, smoothly. If it does, um, that one doesn't feel. Uh, that one is moving back and forth between these two languages in that sense. Mm-hmm. And that's actually really interesting um, to hear a little bit about the dialogic process that went into the translation because uh, moving now for a minute or so um, or more um, to Amino as a historian himself as a way to sort of get into his ideas like that of the you know, vi- translated villager and so on and so forth that are through the book. Um, looking at his work, he's very careful, uh, or he seems to be very careful um, in this work and, and very concerned with putting into history phenomena and kinds of people and modes of being that he seems to claim that we don't have a historical language to talk mm-hmm. about, right? So sort of right, methodologically, right. that seems really interesting. So it's actually especially interesting to hear about this as it um, helped shape the practice of translating his book then into English, which seems like a kind of related problem, but at a different level, right? Mm-hmm. Right. right. So as we, um, he's been kind of a, this ghostly presence over... <laughs> conversation, but let's bring him in directly. Can you, for listeners also um, who may not be familiar with Amino's work, can you tell us um, a bit about him? You, you mentioned that he was a medievalist. You mentioned um, in the book that his experience of World War II and especially his experience of pre-war and wartime education was fundamental in shaping his development as a historian, and he had a very particular um, identity as a historian um, within Japanese historiography. So can you talk a little bit about that and about um, sort of about him as a historian? Sure. Um, he has a wonderful book uh, about uh, post-war historiography. It's a series of essays, and, and, and one of the essays is called My Post-War War Crimes, which is a kind of um, uh, chilling and, and uh, slightly sad um, chapter in which he reflects on what the war uh, and meant and what what the post-war period in particular, what kinds of um, struggles, uh, intellectual struggles uh, folks like uh, him went through. Now, he was 17 when the war was over, so he was not drafted. Uh, he was in Tokyo during the war. He told me at times about uh, living through the firebombing and you know participating and pulling down um, sections of neighborhood you know, buildings and sections of neighborhoods to to create fire breaks and whatnot. Um, but otherwise, he didn't tell me uh, personally that much about the war. But it is something that he he um, lived through, and I, I I think it was you know he was of that age. Uh, entering into college in the immediate aftermath of the war, uh, where where you know people just a few years above him had paid the tremendous price of the war, um, and he had gone through that uh, that wartime education um, that ha- had been positioning him for that kind of thing. He never said anything directly to this to me about this kind of thing. But there's a wonderful essay by Kano Masanao, um, who's who's of a similar generation, who talks about as a child in that wartime education, when the boys in the class are asked, what do you want to be when they when you grow up? Uh, he understood that they all had to say either soldier or sailor. He could not say what he wanted to be, which was a historian. Um, and I think Professor Amino had that kind of thing as well. And so when the when the post-war comes around, there's 
there is a sense there was a sense of both liberation of, of you know uh, possibilities now but but otherwise um, a real strong sense that they had lived through a period of tremendous ideological turmoil um, and that ideology had been a thing that had almost killed them all and so uh, the questions about uh, the nature of the state, um, the nature of the emperor, um, uh, class in Japan, um, uh, discrimination uh, uh, as, a, as a form of so- social uh, regulation and whatnot, were deadly serious questions. Um, and and Amino, uh, wh- in college, uh, joined... Uh, these, you know, student discussion activism groups. Um, and of course, at this point in time, um, as someone like Ogama Eiji uh, writes about in the, in his book, uh, Minshu to Aikoku, or, or the people and patriotism post-war Japan. Um, when the war was over, the communist party was one of the few elements of Japanese society that could plausibly say that they'd had no responsibility whatsoever for that disastrous war, that they had in fact resisted it. And that those communist party members who had just come out of prison, uh, were able to show that they had about by virtue of their, um, uh, fidelity to, to the communist ideology had been able to resist physically with great courage, uh, Japanese fascism. And so, uh, the, the communist party had a tremendous appeal to, to many people like professor Amino in, in those early years. Um, but it also became a place where, you know, uh, as one can imagine very quickly, the, uh, debates about, um, ideology could very quickly turn into, uh, rather vicious debates in which people could very quickly be accused of collaborationism and and uh, and wrong thinking, etc. Uh, and and he was in the midst of all of that in in those uh, years forty six, forty seven, forty eight, forty nine. Um, and uh, he writes in that essay about and, and and the way that he writes it, it's it's hard to tell whether it's metaphoric or if it's quite literal about driving people to suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a it's, so in that sense, it's a very very dark memory for him of that of that ideological struggle um, at that moment. And in the midst of that struggle, well, he graduates and he needs he needs to eat. <laughs> he needs a job, and he finds a job. Um, through a man named Uno Shuhei, who was the director of a research center in the fisheries agency uh, that was called the Jomin Bunka Kenkyujo, or the, the Institute for the Center of, uh, for the Study of Japanese uh, Folk Culture. Uno was a member of the Communist Party, and that was one of the ways that Amino uh, had gotten to know him. But Uno was also hired uh, to run the center by Shibasawa Keizo. And that's, that's the connection between Shibasawa and, and Amino. So Amino comes to work at this place, but as he says, he, he treated his first years of working there, or his first several months of working there, much the way that he treated classes at, at uh, University of Tokyo, which is he barely ever showed up. And most of the time he was running around engaged in, in more ideological struggles in the movement, etc. Um, and he's looking at the older uh, men and women working in the center. Uh, his, he met his wife there, by the way. She was a young woman also working at that, at that research center. Um, as engaged in small-minded activities. But they put him to work on things that made him have to engage with with 
details and had to force him to work with uh, materials that were quite unusual. It was a really interesting uh, research center at the time. Uh, Shibasawa had been interested in material culture, but he'd also been interested in developing um, studies of maritime culture in Japan. Mm-hmm. So within the field of, of Minzokugaku, if we think of Yanagita Kunio as the mainstream, he, he early in his career, he's really interested in, in the uh, bizarre uh, culture of the Japanese mountains. And after the 1920s, he moves in toward thinking about um, the mainstream uh, Japanese culture of, of what he would have called the peasantry in the, the agricultural villages and whatnot. Um, Shibasawa develops uh, a line of inquiry into coastal villages uh, where uh, the mode of production is not rice agriculture, it's fisheries, it's, it's uh, salt uh, production, it's shipping, etc. Um, their communities are predicated on a much more mobile lifestyle um, and a much, more, uh, much stronger sense of connectivity across larger spaces and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So that was the, the, the kind of stuff that, sh- that Shibasawa had been developing uh, as Yanagita had been developing this, this core investigation of the rice agricultural um, uh, sources of Japanese culture. In the post-war years, um, as the occupation came in and we're lo- the, the, everyone's thinking about how to democratize Japan, one of the big issues was land reform, um, as you may know. Mm-hmm. And um, Shibasawa proposed that Japan also probably needed ocean reform. Uh, that there, just as there were uh, practices of land ownership and renting uh, and whatnot that perpetuated uh, hierarchies that were inimical, inimical to um, democracy, uh, there may be the same kinds of practices in the fisheries communities. So they needed to do studies of, of how fisheries communities organize themselves so that there could be an ocean reform. And that was the project that Amino began on. Uh, and, and there's a fascinating book. I just love this book that he wrote about this experience, uh, which is called Returning uh, Old Documents. Because what he did, his job was to go out to the countryside to fishing villages, find homes that had old documents and borrow them uh, and take them back to Tokyo. So uh, there's uh, in, in the Jomin today, you can see these old receipt books full of pages and pages of receipts in which they've written down the name of the family that's loaned them the documents, how many documents are there, etc., what the loan period is. And then the name of the person who borrowed the documents is, is uh, stamped on the bottom of it. And you see Amino's stamp on many of these things. So he's a twenty. He's in his mid-20s. He's going off to these, these villages and he's gathering these documents and he's signing these documents and he's... Uh, these receipts and then he's sending them back to Tokyo where they're all working on them together. And so it's in, you know, the very beginning he's encountering a realm of document that is really different from what you would be seeing in the central agricultural villages. It's, it's, it's concerns are different, uh, et cetera. Um, and, and that really became, you know, the, the start of his look at these different areas and the, the, the foundation of his notion of maritime history as, uh, as a, a, a crucial um, uh, approach to Japanese historiography. That's as I say, that, that center... Uh, go ahead. No, 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 go on, go on. Well, that center uh, lost its funding in 1952. Um, and uh, with that, he had to go out and find another job and he began to teach in, in a Japanese high school. Uh, and 
you know, uh, this is this is indicative of the the history of Japanese historians, right? Um, nobody got a PhD in those days. Uh, how you wound up in a university job was was uh, uh, it had a lot more to do with who your advisors were, what kind of you know, and and so the path to becoming a professional historian uh, for much of the post war period in Japan could quite viably lead through teaching in the high school to other kinds of places. And indeed, while he was a high school teacher, he was working on his early studies of the the Shoen system, the, the medieval land holding system in in Japan. Um, and so, uh, from the high school, he went to Nagoya and at Nagoya, he, he did, um, the work that really established his name in the field, uh, including the, the really big book, uh, not in size, but the, the really important book called, uh, Muen Kugairaku, which means, um, non-connectedness, uh, uh, public space and market, uh, um, freedom and love in medieval Japan is the, the subtitle of that. And, uh, it's a profoundly important book, um, and he did that while he was at Nagoya. Uh, it, to step back just quickly then for a minute, the reason he left Nagoya to go to Kanagawa University was because of all the documents that he had borrowed uh, in his 20s. They ran out of funding rather suddenly, and many of the documents that he borrowed from the families never got returned. And so for the next couple decades, he would occasionally get these phone calls from these people who had managed to track him down from different coastal villages saying, what happened to the family documents? You need to return those. And they would have these periodic efforts to return them. The documents would be in somebody's uh, storehouse. They'd be, uh, they were for a time stored at the Musashino uh, University of Art or College of Art, however they translate in English. They went from place to place to place. And finally, the, the, a number of the young people who had borrowed those documents got together in, in the mid-1980s and said, we, this can't continue anymore. We have to reestablish the center so that we can return the documents. Uh, and and Amino you know, agreed so that he could, you know, get those documents back to people. And that's, that's the story behind um, the, trans, the, the transformative experience he had with the Tokukuni family in the Noto Peninsula, which is the subject of chapter one of the book. Uh, the, 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 the return of these documents is, was the opportunity for him to rethink what it meant uh, to be a hyakusho. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. That's so interesting to hear about because one of the things that's so striking in this book is his approach to sources and to their materiality. I mean, throughout these chapters, you'll find references to the importance of documents that were not intended to be kept, right? The documents found in insulation, side documents that were on the other side of letters and so on and so forth. And it's, it's, it seems to be such an important part of his historiographical practice to sort of focus on the accidents, right? To focus on that, which was not supposed to be, was not meant to be preserved as a way of getting at, um, or getting away from the dominant story into a more fleshed out polyvocal story of what was happening um, outside the center. Right. And the Tokikuni family that comes up in chapter one is a perfect example of that. Mm-hmm. They, uh, Miyamoto Tsunichi had been the one who borrowed those. Miyamoto was a, a very big uh, name in post-war Japanese ethnography. And he'd gone to the, to the village, um, where the Tokikuni family was, uh, in around 1951, I think. 
And they're a gigantic house in this river valley. And so he knows that they're probably the family that had documents that the village uh, would have exchanged with the warlord of the area, which would which was the Maeda clan uh, for the most part. So he goes to the Tokiguni family as as the largest house there, and and he's he's doing these the the studies of of the Nota Peninsula as a whole, and he asks them if he can borrow their family documents. They give him about three hundred, and he brings them back. And then shortly after, and they actually published them. But before they could bring them back to Noto, they ran out of their funding. So the Tokiguni documents sat there forever. And Amino, when he come when he came back to Kanagawa, and or when he came back to the Jomin, they established it at Kanagawa University, and they're going through the boxes, and he gets to the box of the Tokikuni documents, and he pulls them out, and he says, "Oh, I know these. These are the Tokikuni documents. We'd better get those back." <laughs> so he he contacts the Tokikuni family, and he goes out there with the documents, uh, all ready to you know abject himself in front of the family. It turns out that the head of the family, who had loaned the documents to Miyamoto Tsunichi, had already died. Wondering on his deathbed what had happened to the family documents. So Amino goes there ready to just, you know, uh, apologize in, uh, in, in the most abject terms. And uh, the, the uh, now female head of the household says to him, thank you for returning these. You know, we have more in the storehouse if you want to look at those. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so Amino calls up a colleague and a couple graduate students and they come out and they go into the storehouse and they find 5,000 more. Wow. And the 5,000 that they find in the storehouse were very different in content and uh, nature from the ones that Miyamoto had borrowed. The ones that Miyamoto had borrowed were the ones that were circulated between that family and the warlord. You know, and if you have a family, you know, in the Tokugawa period, with the warriors having been pulled out of the villages, you really have to have a, you know, a large family act as the sort of local representative of, of, of domainal authority and be the one that uh, exchanged all the communications with the warlord. And that was the, this, the Tokuni family. And so the documents that they showed him were the, the official communications with the warlord, which represented really those kinds of documents that were at the core of the Tokugawa ideological formulation of society. When they go into the warehouse, now he's looking at a different set of documents that weren't changed to the warlord. And the warlord may or may not have been aware of these kinds of things, right? It's much more an, an internal set of documents, which now what we're seeing in the, in the warehouse is documents that have to do with how the um, village administered itself, with one of its its main um, goals being to make sure that domain authorities never had to come in to investigate anything. <laughs> so if there are any troubles, they got to solve it themselves, right? Um, and these these documents involve uh, you know lots of loans, uh, punishments of crime, redistribution of land, uh, that kind of thing. And so they worked on those documents for for many years, and then and then. The, they noticed that all the walls were, were full of documents because we're up in the Noto Peninsula and you have your sliding walls in these houses. And so when you have a piece of paper that you don't need anymore, uh, instead of throwing it away, you stuff it into the wall so your walls can have insulation and protect you a little bit more from the cold. Mm -hmm. And so the entire house is, in fact, a document, right? Or it's a, you, you peel back the outer stiff paper from, the, from these walls, uh, from the Fusuma, and inside, it's packed to the gills with documents. And uh, in there, they find really interesting stuff that, again, is 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 different from the stuff that was in the in the warehouse. And what what you found, what they found in the walls, were things that really showed that the villages themselves 
uh, were engaged in pretty wide-ranging activities, uh, both in terms of, of uh, the material, uh, things like uh, lead mining and um, all kinds of other kinds of production, but also traveling. They found a letter from sailors who were sailing a ship for the Tokikuni um, in 1850s in which they had gone all the way to Sakhalin trying to sell their goods. <laughs> and so, you know, it's a really different and, – and that stuff, you know, is not meant to survive at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not meant to survive in part because it's, it's, it's just uh, – who are you going to show that to, right? It's not – it's not uh, for public display in any way. Mm-hmm. Well, we th- this is actually a really interesting way to get into um, also another one of the issues that comes up uh, in his work. So you give us um, in the introduction a really great distillation and sense of some of the major themes um, that Amino was concerned with and that the reader ought to look for or might, um, might look for as a way to bring together these different case studies and these different concerns in the chapters. We've already talked a bit about the importance of um, his adopting a perspective of the sea to see and, um, and rather than a perspective from the land um, and how that was important. Um, one of the things you've mentioned in your description of the process of the uh, the craft of the translation with Amino was the importance of this term, hyakusho, right? Um, and the importance um, of not translating it as farmer. Now, this part of a larger set of um, arguments in the book, or it seems to be part of a larger set of arguments in the book, in which he's sort of arguing against the uh, agrarian fundamentalism or the agricultural idea, right? So taking away the idea that Japan has always been an agricultural society in which the, like, everyone was a farmer. So can, since this is so important um, in this book, can you speak a little bit to this issue? Why, um, why was this so important to him, and to what extent has this been pervasive in Japanese historiography? Right, right. Yeah, you know, it's... Um there, there are so many ways of answering uh, the, the question. Um, I would say that, yes, it has been fundamental for a number of reasons, one of which is, uh, and I, I tried to write about this in, in the introduction, is certainly the, um, the, the Tokugawa settlement, as, as they say, to the, to the long period of civil war, was one that emphasized the creation of a society that would be stable and um, eternally replicable, Um, that uh, you would have a class system in which the people, uh, in which the classes would be set. You would not uh, anymore have that low overthrow or the high kind of chaos that you had in the the, uh, warring states period. Um, But peasants would be peasants uh, forever and ever. Uh, that uh, the system of values, uh, economic values, and others would be established on a a form of natural economy um, in which uh, the farmers grow the the grain each year. Um, They harvest the grain. They grow the grain again next year. um, And you should have eternal uh, repeatability of the society. Mm -hmm. And so um, for ideological reasons, uh, there's a, a great deal of interest in, in producing the image of a society with stable and predictable um, outlines and modes of production. Uh, and then 
on top of that, of course, because you do have uh, a tax system that functions that way, you have uh, the production of a lot of documents that seem to provide the evidence that this was, in fact, the case. Um, and and so it, it becomes uh, really very easy to focus on land ownership as as the the the, um, the production of agricultural products as the as the core of Japanese uh, history. Now there's there's another another set of things going on here, and one of which is a kind of fantasy of origins um, in which. We, we you see this all the time in in, in um, things like um, I don't know uh, evolutionary psychology when people say well men are like this because they went out and hunted the animals and women are like this because they stayed in the caves and prepared the you know the hearth for the return that kind of origin fantasy right so there are origin fantasies about communities as well or Japan uh, in which say the the Jomin people before the arrival of, of uh, people uh, in large migration uh, around the 3rd century um, BCE uh, from the Asian mainland, uh, the Jomon people were hunter-gatherers, um, and uh, they would move around in a small area um, and be relatively isolated from themselves, uh, you know, from other people, uh, made, and, and um, simply produce what they they needed, and then you have the uh, the influx of immigrants from the Asian mainland who bring agriculture. Um, and with agriculture, yet again, what we have is the establishment of stable communities to produce everything that they themselves need, and 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 nothing more. But over time, as society gets more complex, you get the cir- greater circulation of people, greater circulation of goods. You get people moving into areas like the mountains where they can't produce all of the things that they need for themselves. And so they begin to inaugurate activities of trade, uh, which then is the sort of original sin in this, in this uh, historical narrative for all kinds of stuff, right? So the, this historical fantasy is one in which we move from an ancient past of self-sufficiency and isolation. And you can imagine a, any narrative that's about isolation in Japanese history is, is really a narrative about uh, Japan being isolated from the Asian continent, right? And not, not being really um, part of that civilization. And Amino uh, really, really disliked that, <laughs> that fantasy. Um, he was really... Um, uh, very enamored of uh, a dig of Jomon area um, site up in uh, Aomori, uh, a place called Mariyama Sanai, in which they discovered a Jomon era settlement that had been continually inhabited for 1500 years um, and had had uh, this is something that's written about in, in um, uh, I think the second chapter uh, of, the, of the book um, and showed Signs not just of of non agricultural production, but more importantly of widespread trade. Um, that uh, and and Amino takes the Mariamasanai um, dig and essentially says uh, this fantasy we have of an originally isolated community is nothing more than a fantasy. It never existed in in time. Human beings, the foundation of human culture, the, of, of human production, has always been exchange. And they've been exchanging, uh, human beings have been exchanging uh, remarkable things for 
longer than you can imagine. And that sets into motion for him uh, a notion of, of a culture that is always in movement as, as opposed to being fixed in one place alone. Uh, and that it's movement across space. And it's those who, who do the movement more than others who really become the, the engines of, of historical uh, change. So that's that's certainly one way of, of telling that story. Yeah, thank you so much. Now, this is one of many, many um, important themes that come out in his work, and we don't have time to um, to talk about all of them, but there's one more thing I wanted to make sure to ask you about before we close and we wrap up. Um, things that I'll just mention for listeners um, so that they know about it um, without us necessarily having to talk about it. Other issues um, that really are very important in this work are issues of continuity in Japanese identity. So it's a reframing of the history of the term Nihon in time. He talks about, um, he's very concerned with um, sacred and profane space as they shape history, history of money, um, all kinds of history. He's interested in, as, as we've um, talked about a little bit, and, uh, people who have been marginalized or effaced by the mainstream historiography, so the bandits and the pirates. Now, but So all of this is in the book, and, and it's very, very rich for anyone interested in these issues. Now, the last thing, though, before we wrap up that I wanted to ask you about speaks also, it seems like, to your own interest in ethnography and the history of ethnography. Amino's approach, um, just from the perspective of a, of a reader, really seems to rest on the linking of historical and ethnographic practice. And you mentioned a little bit uh, when you talked about his interest in anthropology. He had um, he makes repeated reference throughout the work to his own experience or to the contemporary world and um, the here and now. He, he seems to want to link um, the past and the present, but also to remind us that there are some phenomena that we can't understand from our perspective now. So um, as someone who's also interested in um, historical ethnography or the relationship between ethnography and history, can you speak a little bit to this? Because this, I think, is a really interesting issue um, from the perspective of his- the historian's craft writ large. I mean, that this extends well past the Japan field. Right, right. Now, this is, it, it's to me one of the really most uh, personally productive. When, when I read Amino and I, I see how he, he uses um, uh, anthropological methodology or ethnography to, to rethink his materials, it's really one of the best um, productive methodologies that he uses in there. Um, and it's, it's indicative uh, in all kinds of important places, whether he's talking about, as you said, money, his discussion of money is, is uh, fascinating um, in, in part because he takes a, a, an anthropological uh, approach to it. And he, uh, and yet it's, it's so broadly linked to everything else in the book. So, you know, he, he makes the argument that, um, uh, in and, and this is uh, in fact also uh, a, a bit Marxist at times. Um, he's interested in the act of exchange in a marketplace, and he observes that you know um, in a society with less developed um, uh, economies of exchange, uh, the exchange of an item between two people uh, is an exchange that also creates a, a human relationship between them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that makes the exchange of goods fraught with all kinds of problems. Uh, and so one of the things that uh, a marketplace needs to do is to, if, it, if, if exchange is really going to be um, enabled, 
is it needs to be able to uh, enable exchange without forging those human relationships. Um, and so he describes how these old older marketplaces worked in which uh, people who had something to trade would, would go to a temple and donate the goods that they had to trade in the marketplace to the gods of the temple. And then they would borrow the goods back and go trade it. But now that they're trading in the marketplace, they're trading not their own goods, but goods that belong to the gods. Uh, and they make their exchanges and, and then they go back to the temple and they pay the temple a uh, you know, a, a gratitude um, for this, but the 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 temple plays uh, or the shrine, I'm sorry, um, plays a necessary role of severing the human relationship between the human and the object, it creates an alienation between the object that the human wants to trade and the human being itself, so that the, the objects can be traded as commodities. Um, and it's that kind of uh, ability to to look at. Um, what are the what were the means by which an economic transaction could take place uh, in a way that would not come into fundamental contradiction with other um, uh, social understandings uh, is indicative of the kinds of things he he did in the book and he links that to uh, his argument for the centrality of women uh, in uh, economic activity um, and to those people that he calls the outcasts um, or the the non humans the the, the, the people these days the call the, the outcasts and this uh, the first time I met him um, when he came to to Chicago I was uh, reading uh, Muen Kugayaraku that that profound book of his and that's a book that's really very much about these these non-humans and these marginal peoples and I was I was meeting with him and I was I was saying to him, you know, these, these marginal people that you're describing through this book, they're just, there's so many of them that I'm, I, I can't help but get the impression that they're really, and I'm, I'm hesitant to say this, the majority. And he's smiling and nodding at me. Yes, they were the majority. <laughs> the, mar- the margins were the majority. Um, and, and, you know, ultimately he, what he does with this is, is he makes this really strong case that what we see as a center of a society is not established as a center of society by natural, by virtue of some kind of natural presence at the center, but it does so by creating its margins by in, in, a, in a grand struggle between certain kinds of activities and other kinds of activities. Um, those that lose become marginalized and, and that has a lot to do with, um, with his anthropological and material cultural uh, approach. You know, there's one part of the book that I still don't understand very well. It has to do with money, and that has to do with the fact, this discussion of the of the fact that money was buried so often. Mm-hmm. It's it's still a puzzle to me. Um, I mean, I I understand it, but when I give explanations in class, I always feel like I'm not convincing anybody <laughs> <laughs> when I'm talking about the burial of money. Uh, but it's it's his ability to read burial of money in an anthropological vein. It's his ability to to read women's activities in an anthropological vein. It's his ability to read texts. Um, that chapter on writing is one of my favorites uh, uh, because of the way that he treats texts as material objects um, and as media of communication in a material way, right? The, 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 the writing system that you use in these texts is materially, materially related to uh, the interpretation that you're going to make of these texts. It's not mere instrumentality, right? His discussion of katakana. Katakana is not something that was written by people who could barely write. Katakana was a writing system for transcribing orality. 
and orality was tied to the notion of the speech of the gods, and therefore it had a it had a very high truth value to it. So something that you might look at at first glance and think, oh, it's katakana. This is written by people who are barely literate. Amino you know, makes a really strong case that no, what we're looking at here is a very profound strategy for making an argument in the case of a, of a lawsuit here um, for the truth claims of, of those making that case. And he does that through this anthropological and, and materialist read of the texts. That kind of, of, of you know, rethinking of the materials that you're using with uh, is something that is enabled for him, at least in my reading, uh, with his use of ethnographic um, approaches and, and uh, ethnographic studies that he's read before and I think it's really um, for me one of the one of the exciting things because it really opens up new ways for us to think about about stuff well Alan thank you so much um, this has been so interesting t- for me to talk with you about this for the past hour and the book is fantastic there's so much in the book um, that it's impossible to cover all of it in the space of an hour is there anything else that we didn't cover but that you'd like to point out for listeners who especially those who may not yet have had an opportunity to read it yeah I I, uh, <laughs> I do talk a long time when I talk about this but my stories get a little bit long so uh, all kinds of things um, end up getting left out. It's um, it is a book that, in the end, um, as, as I wrote in the introduction, I do think that it provides this. Even as as it's very much about Japanese history, there's no question. It does provide us with ways of rethinking uh, what are the foundational presumptions that we're operating within any of our other historiographies um, and and how might we go back and rethink those those kinds of things is one of the, the bigger lessons um, that I, I take uh, from the book and um, and certainly um, enjoy thinking about with him um, it, it's it's gosh uh, picking it up here and, and taking a quick look at it now um, yeah, no, it's just, it, it, it's, a, it's a really fun, exciting, uh, read, particularly book two as a way of, of rethinking that, um, the meaning of the margins as well. So no, I think <laughs> I'm sure an hour from now, I will think of the things that I should have said. Uh, but for the moment, I think we, you did a great job of covering some of the uh, bring questions on some of the, the big things in the book. And um, if people uh, get a chance to read this and enjoy it and, and find it, uh, you know, we're thinking about in other areas and then that would be great. I think, um, for Professor Amino, one of the things that, uh, well, let me tell you a, a little, just a little bit about what it was like to be in a seminar with him. He would often stop the seminar. It was a seminar with other graduate students and other professors um, that we were in, and uh, we were all working on Tokuni and other things. But he would stop that seminar every now and then and just go around the room and, and say to the people in the room how excited he was about the work they were doing and he would say Izumi your work on the the, the, the shipping in, in the Japan Sea is going to fundamentally change everything we ever thought about such and such and Sekiguchi your work on the on the outcasts in the Tokugawa period is we're never going to be able to think Japanese history again after, when, when you get this stuff and he would go through the room like that to each of the people in the room every now and then and that was part of that 
spirit of generosity I talk about, but it was also that what he really wanted to do was just open up, right? You know, this is not a definitive book on these things. He want he wants to open up for people to think uh, and do more. And uh, for me, that's that that's ultimately the value of the book is is that this is none of this is, is any final word. All of this is door opening, and it's in that sense, it's a really productive book. Thank you so much. So now that this is all um, out and, and this uh, many years labor of love is now um, reached fruition, what's next for you? You mentioned that you have a book that's just out. Um, what What's the next project occupying you right now? I am uh, in the middle of way too many things, which is slowing them all down. Uh, it's, it's so typical, it's so, right? so typical, so typical. I uh, have done uh, uh, some work on Okinawa uh, on my own, and um, I have a couple of digital projects that I'm, I'm pursuing in Okinawa. So I'm doing some digital humanities kinds of things. I've been team teaching a course on memories of World War II in the Pacific area, um, Pacific region, with a, a colleague for about 12 years or so now, and and that's led to uh, some some very interesting collaborative projects. And I'm, I'm working on a book right now, um, you know, the, the solo man uh, monograph kind of thing, um, which is a study of the legacies of three war monuments in the Tokyo area. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is a monument to the three suicide bombers known as the uh, the three human bullets of, uh, of, of an incident in 1932 in Shanghai. Um, and another it was a, uh, a monument to the um, 1940 celebrations of, of the uh, 2600th year anniversary of the founding of the Japanese Empire. Um, and w- which had inscribed upon it the, the, the slogan of the Greater East Asia Pro Prosperity Sphere, uh, Hakoichi, or the whole world in one roof. And then the third monument is this really, really weird monument to Boy Scouting in Bushido that was put up in 1965 <laughs> in, in uh, a place called Kodomo no Kuni, or the Land of Children in um, in Yokohama. And what I'm interested in is is looking at at, at monument making um, and uh, what happens when a monument which was made in a particular context with the intention of of being able to concretize for all times the world the perspectives of people at a particular point in time become illegible in part because the context is now so radically changed right another way of putting it is what happens to japanese war memories uh under an american alliance um and and in many ways i'm i'm getting to work through material culture with this and and popular culture and uh, um, and whatnot so and then you know I'd like to return um, to to post-war Japanese means of Gaku ethnography the world that uh, Amino was was working in as well I'm, I, I'm sorely tempted just because I think it's a beautiful the, the, the book he wrote about returning returning documents he has a chapter on Tokiguni what it's like to return the documents and each of these chapters begins with this chilling episode of returning the, the, the documents and you sit there as he's describing it you're reading the, the chapter and you're thinking this one's going to go so badly <laughs> and then it doesn't disaster is averted and then he you know gets involved in a project there and he learns so much and it's uh it's a wonderful book to to describe both the practice of 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 doing history and uh, and the lessons one learns um in these kinds of ways that that would be tempting uh to translate uh 
I don't know why we don't have translations of Kano Masanao's work. Uh, a profoundly interesting, productive, uh, important historian in Japan. I'd love if, if nobody's doing Kano, you know, I, I'm, I may have to give it a shot myself. And then um, Sato Kenji is a historical sociologist at uh, University of Tokyo who's, who's long been a mentor of mine and whose who's every work blows me away. And uh, and I've been talking with Sato about doing something of his sometime. And uh, he, he does historical sociology and a kind of historical media uh, work. And I, I think his work is just is just fabulous. And so uh, there's plenty to occupy me, uh, including uh, two sons to, who, uh, you know, and, and a town in which I can go to the beach with them all day, every day. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, the, I, I've got a lot on the plate, and I hope I hope some of it comes through to fruition. Well, this has been wonderful, Alan. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. The book is fantastic, and thank you so much. Thank you, Carla. It's been my pleasure, really. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks so much, and have a good day.